Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome back to the latest edition of The Audible, presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined by my colleague Stuart Mandel, who is coming to you today from his hotel room somewhere in Ohio. Stu, it's the first time you've been out of the game in a little while, and man, you picked a great game to be at, didn't you? You got to see Oregon put on an amazing performance, shocking everybody, certainly given what we knew about some of their key guys not being able to play uh, to see what they did. What was it like to be there in person? It was awesome. And I'm not going to lie. I mean, as I was dashing through O'Hare on Friday to catch a connection, I thought, you know, I'm doing all this and it's probably just going to be a blowout. Um, and certainly right before the game, we found out about not just Kayvon Thibodeau being out, uh, but also Justin Flo, two of their most talented defensive players going to miss the game. Uh, this is, this could get ugly. And instead we end up with a classic and, um, first of all, just quick mention how great it was to be back in a full stadium. Uh, I went down and and watched the first part of the game in the stands just to, just to feel the atmosphere. Uh, because when you're up in the press box with that closed window, I mean, you really, you'd never even know you're at a football game. You can't hear anything. Um, and by the way, down on the sideline at the end, that stadium was deafening. Um, didn't see it coming. I mean, we, but we have been talking on the podcast for some time going back to last season about Ohio state's defense seemed shaky. I was willing to blame last year on COVID. Then you watch the Minnesota game and it's like, uh Oh, they've still got some issues, but they're out there two top corners in that game. But Oregon never trailed, uh, was able to run the ball, was able to constantly seem like they were running the same play. Uh, constantly beat them to the edge. C.J. Stroud threw for a bunch of yards, but but Oregon made the stops when they needed to, including that um, Roma McKinley interception uh, late. At that point, I thought for sure Oregon was Ohio State was going to tie it up and send it to overtime because it was just so loud in that stadium. But they got the stop they needed, and obviously shakes things up a little bit. And for once, the Pac-12 is not eliminated from playoff contention in in September. Uh, the way I, the way Oregon looked and the fact they're going to get back came on Thibodeau and flow tells you, I think they've got a shot to be in it till the end. Yeah. A couple of things jumped out for me. Um, first of all, I did a, uh, I did a piece for Pac-12 network with Anthony Brown, jr. Their quarterback. And he's very mature. You knew that, uh, he'd obviously been through a lot with the two major knee injuries at BC. Uh, one of the things that in preparing for that interview with him, it's like he had been the starting quarterback for BC when he played at Clemson. That's obviously a tough environment. He went to Lane Stadium and led them to a win. That's not an easy place to win. That place is super loud. He's you know he'd been in a bunch of big games. Maybe not for Oregon, but he is he's an old quarterback. I mean, in terms of maturity wise, and he's got a big picture sense about him. He 
all that being said, I thought he played terrific. I mean, he made some plays with his legs. He never made a big mistake. Didn't you know? Which I I was expecting that to come up. It didn't really happen. Um, the the other thing that jumped out at me um, was we saw this. We saw a version of this last week, by the way, with Ryan Day's mentor Chip Kelly, where UCLA out schemed and certainly outplayed LSU on a big stage. Well, this week it was Oregon that really out schemed and out coached Ohio State. And, you know, you and I, I think, both have been very effusive in our praise of some of the hires Mario Cristobal has made um, there at Oregon. He, he has two really proven commodity coordinators, and Tim Deruder on defense, and certainly Joe Moorhead on offense. Joe Moorhead had saved a bunch of stuff. Obviously, they, it was a close, a close win over Fresno State in the first game. Um, Fresno State is pretty good, but, you know, he... he Broke out a bunch of stuff that he hadn't uh, shown the week before. I know they got some game planning stuff they picked up from Alabama from the national title game that they really exploited. And again, I think one of the things that really kind of came into my head the more I I was watching the game was I think how good that staff is. I mean, go through the list. You have not just those coordinators, but I think there's four guys on the defensive staff who have been defensive coordinators. It's it's uh, the cornerbacks coach, Rod Chance, was one. Certainly, uh, you know, Ken Wilson has been at the linebacker coach. You have DeRuder, and you have Marcel Yates, who was a defensive coordinator as well in the Pac-12. So that's a lot of brain power. And on the other side, when you talk about some of the stuff they did with the run game, you know, the running back coach, uh, Jim Mastro, he was one of the, you know, along with Chris Alt, one of the creators of the pistol. Like, he has a very good sense of the run game. And I think those things were really hard. If I was an Ohio State fan, and look, we we did talk about this a bunch. Ohio State was not very good on defense last year. And my you know issue, and I felt like I caught some blowback from Ohio State fans who were like incredulous that you could question their talent, was they weren't very good on defense last year. And they lost Pete Werner, who was a terrific player. They lost Tough Borland, who was a very experienced player, Baron Browning, and Justin Hilliard, um, those are all legit guys. You may have had guys who were four and five star guys coming out of high school, but the fact that they weren't playing last year on a defense or playing hardly at all on a defense that was really shaky, I think that was a little bit of a warning sign. And Minnesota gave them a gave them some problems. Minnesota has nowhere near the speed that Oregon has. So certainly on both sides of the ball, but I mean especially on offense. And I thought all that stuff, not to say it can't get fixed, um, but Kerry Combs, who was the defensive coordinator that uh, that Ryan Day has gone with, I mean, he's an un, you know he's older, but he was a longtime high school coach. He was a really good cornerbacks coach at Ohio State, then went to the NFL, and then to get him back, they basically made him the co- the coordinator. And you know, look, Ryan Day had a great hire with Jeff Halfley as his defensive coordinator. This one, I think, is 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 going to be a work in progress, and we'll see how quickly they can turn it around. Um, I would ask you this. So what is your bigger takeaway here? That Oregon could be a real playoff team, or that Ohio State, because of this defense, I mean, they threw for 500 yards, basically, and they still lost at home, and they never, and they never led the game. That Ohio State maybe isn't in that pack with 
you know, the five that we think are the clear class of college football right now? I think the biggest takeaway for me is we knew that Mario Cristobal had been recruiting at a very high level, racking up guys and getting them to almost to the point where you felt like they could be one of the elite programs nationally. I just didn't know if Anthony Brown was a good enough quarterback to win a game like that. And he clearly was. And if he can beat Ohio state on the road, then I tr- now trust him against um, just about anybody. And then I think it really speaks to how well he has recruited that, you know, you're, you're down two of your best guys on defense, including a possible number one pick. And right from the outset, you could, you saw more dudes. You saw, I mean, Oregon's defense was faster and more athletic than Ohio State. So I, I start with that, but also, you know, everything you just talked about. Uh, Ohio State's defense, this is not a, this might not be an easy fix. You just assume a program like that reloads every year on defense, on, on both sides of the ball. They clearly are just absolutely loaded on offense, but I, I don't know. I don't know. You could say, oh, he's just got to fix the scheme. Um, it seems like they're just, especially, you know, linebackers in particular, just seems like they're not well coached. And now you look at Ohio State's schedule, there still aren't a lot of teams, you know, they're going to be Tulsa, they're going to be Akron, they're going to be Rutgers, Maryland. The first team they play again, kind of with a pulse is Indiana on October 23rd. So they do have time to get it figured out. Uh, but I don't, I mean, I don't think the standard at Ohio State is national championships. This team's not going to win a national championship. And the question I think is just, can they, get it together enough to win the big 10 and go to the playoff. One thing that, that I kind of was like did a double take on, you know, obviously Mario Cristobal is, it was an old lineman and he was an old line coach. I mean, it's a big deal to him. Eric's Alex Mirabal is, it was, you know, his best friend basically. And his, his old line coach there, you know, we, we, they had to replace the whole offensive line last year, including Panay Sewell. I think one of the things that was really pretty remarkable because I expected Ohio State's defensive line to be much better than it was last year because of Jack Sawyer, because of uh, JT Tuimaloao, and yet one TFL and zero sacks in the whole game. I mean, you know, like you could see a team get blown out and not have, and and have like five TFLs just to have nothing. Um, That to me was telling you know, because that was the one area I thought they would be. I thought the secondary would be shaky. I definitely thought the linebackers were going to be worse this year. But I thought the defensive line would be able to cover up for a lot of it. And that was something that they were not able to do at all. And, look, you got a couple of really young players in there. But, you know, Haskell Garrett has played a ton of football inside. They do have guys who are, you know, where was, you know, Malik Harrison was, you know, like, yes, Oregon has, Mario Cristobal has recruited really well there. But, like, they haven't recruited like Ohio State has recruited, especially when you take out the, you know, two the two biggest recruits they've gotten were the two guys who were sidelined yesterday. I mean, you can throw Noah Sewell, who was all over the field yesterday, was one of them also. But it wasn't like, you know, they don't have just five-star guys laying around. So, I mean. Well, you got to coach them up. You got to develop them. And Oregon's done a better job of that. Uh, also, C.J. Verdell probably one of the more underrated running backs in the country. He's been there four years. Uh, I know he was hurt last year, but 2019, he had a big season and kind of the defining play of the game, I think was he had his um, 73 yard touchdown. And as Bill Landis, our Ohio state writer wrote, even before, you know, almost as soon as they snapped it, you could see the straight line, the, the hole 
straight from him in the backfield to the end zone. That that's how well blocked it was. That he he didn't have to do anything; just run straight through that long, that gap. Um, anyway, uh, credit to them. Now, if we're saying Ohio State is vulnerable, and clearly they are, they're saying, all right, well, who could who could who might win the Big Ten instead of them if that happens? Usually, we default to the next team in the East: Penn State, Michigan, et cetera. But through two games, the best team in the Big Ten, I think, is Iowa because they played two ranked teams already. And beaten both of them decisively with a defense that now has uh, that they had two pick sixes against Indiana, intercepted Brock Purdy three times yesterday to the point where Brock Purdy, four year starter, you know, one of the heroes of Iowa State football under Matt Campbell, got benched. It was going so poorly. Um, rough one for the Cyclones and their and their big moment, obviously biggest game they've ever hosted there. Uh, can that Iowa team win the Big Ten? I think they can. Um, you know, Tyler Goodson is one of the best running backs in the country. They have some decent weapons outside. They're always going to be good up front. Spencer Petrus, you know, he didn't have a great game yesterday either. But, you know, I think it's time, you know, more people need to be talking about Phil Parker, the defensive coordinator. You know, he did an amazing job there. He usually does. Um, you know, like, I don't do the art, you know, one top 10 rankings, like, like, late Saturday night anymore. And I, I am always kind of beholden to what has happened on the field. I think if I was doing them now, I would have Iowa in my top four. And because, you know, look, we don't know how good Indiana is. I think they're decent. But you beat Iowa State on the road. You you know, to me, that's a those are, those are not cupcake wins. And they blew Indiana off the field. So to me... You know, I think Iowa is definitely deserving to be a, you know, if, if you're going to put Clemson in the top five after Clemson didn't have a touchdown and then played some, you know, played a, a FCS team and blew them out, I think you got to have, uh, you, you got to watch what's going on in the field. I'm not saying this is the way it's going to be at the end, but I absolutely think Iowa um, can can be that. Now, look, I, I will... Uh, I will take the brunt of this because I've been touting Iowa State all offseason as I think they're a playoff team. And look, you know what? Brock Purdy has played a lot of football, but it was just not a – it was not good enough. You had Brees Hall who had a really bad fumble in you know inside their own 10. That was a – I don't want to say it turned the game, but it definitely put them in such a hole. You know, too many mistakes there by that team. And – yeah, they can still win the Big Twelve because obviously this 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 is an out of conference game. But um, I just think if you're once again Iowa State, really shaky starts out of the gate, and it, when you play a team as good as Iowa in Week Two, um, I don't know. I got to admit, when we were doing our picks, I had been I had been trumpeting. I've been trumpeting both teams, but really Iowa State. And then when I started looking at it, I was like, huh, the road team does really well in this series. Uh, Spencer Petras usually is better away than home. And Brees Hall, their running back, is better on the road than he is at home. And it was just like, ugh. And I, but I couldn't, you know, get off my pick. And so in my head, so I just wrote it out. And just from watching it, Iowa was clearly the better team, I thought. I know they didn't do much offensively, but defensively, they were just dominant. Max Olson, our, um, our, our great writer who, has written a lot about Matt Campbell and Iowa state over the years. He was at the game. 
I should mention, by the way, we're down to the last couple of days of the 50% off sale for The Athletic. Go to theathletic.com slash the audible. We have, if nothing else, we have coverage of every notable game yesterday. People were there. Um, I like this paragraph in his story. Something's missing here. The Cyclones weren't overrated. Matt Campbell and his team have everything they need to be more successful than ever before. They probably still will be, despite how oddly disappointing their first two performances have been. They can... This is not a situation like we're talking about Ohio State and their shaky defense. We know exactly what we're getting from Iowa State. It's the same players. Uh, maybe it's just a slow start situation. Maybe Iowa is that good. But the problem now is a program like Iowa State doesn't get the same benefit of the doubt as Ohio. Like if Ohio State turns around and wins out, they're going to play off. Iowa State needed that non-conference win. They needed to beat Iowa. And now they're going to go into Big 12 play. People don't necessarily respect the Big 12. You know, if they beat Oklahoma, that would certainly be a big win, big credibility win. But yeah, they're probably not. Now, of course, for Iowa State, just winning the Big 12 would be a huge accomplishment for that program. But, um, you know, there was, you you were saying they can get in the playoff. A lot of people were saying that. I think that that might be dicey at this point. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. You know who else from the Big 12 is not going to play off? Uh, the Texas Longhorns. That's correct. I, you Boy. probably didn't get a chance to see much of that game, I assume, because you were... Well, no, actually I did. Um, I, it was maybe second quarter when I got back to the room. It, it, I had, it was deja vu. I felt like I was watching the Taysom Hill-BYU game against Texas so all over again. When remember BYU, Now, I looked it up. BYU ran for 500 yards in that game. This wasn't quite that, but that's what it was. It was Arkansas just running the ball over and over and over and and just gashing Texas. Yeah, I, I work with Acho, and you know, obviously he was a former really good player. You might want to specify which. Yes, Acho. you're right. I work with Emmanuel Acho. Thank <laughs> you. Um, he was a really good player at UT before going to the NFL, and so we're watching the game, and you keep kind of waiting for for okay, they've taken a body blow from Arkansas, and. Texas will get in this game and make a game. And it just got worse and worse. And one of the things that I thought was interesting was, you know, Acho made the point, you know, a couple of times in our avocado room about we got to see Casey Thompson, you know, right now. And I don't think it was, honestly, it wasn't just that. I mean, you know, like in in our room, 
you know, we got one guy who played at Texas and the other guy in Chris Peterson, who one of his best friends is, you know, is the defensive coordinator, Pete Kwiatkowski, now at Texas, and also Jeff Choate, who is also on that defensive staff. And we're watching it. And I'm like, they're getting gashed. It wasn't like, it wasn't just like, oh, shaky quarterback play. They couldn't really run the ball, and they have a terrific running back in B. John Robinson. And they were getting a run down their throats, and it just looked like Arkansas had way, way more uh, energy to play this game. And Texas didn't really look like they wanted to be there. Um, you know, again, this doesn't, I don't think this is an indictment of, oh, Sark can't get it done there. They had a, I think what was interesting to me just looking at it was, they did a lot better than I expected them to do in week one against Louisiana, who I think is very good. And they did a lot worse against Arkansas. Now, if I had, if it was reversed, I wouldn't have been surprised. But I guess I was surprised because they looked very good. And I think, you know, look, Texas football did not fall apart overnight. It's not going to get fixed, you know, in a couple of weeks. So it's clearly a... You know, this looked a lot, honestly, like a Tom Herman team. They, now, they Tom Herman seemed to get didn't get blown out the way this team was getting blown out, but it just looked a little bit lost and just unsure of itself. I wonder if so. These are the kind of things you you aren't necessarily aware of. We don't we're not in all these towns. We can't you know grasp on these things, but. You know, everybody talked about, oh, it's a, it's a Southwest Conference reunion. It's, it's a cool rivalry getting back. I don't think I realized just how big a deal this game was for Arkansas. Uh, they treated it like the Super Bowl, basically. Their fans stormed the field afterward. Uh, I had seen some pictures and stuff from the days leading up to it. I don't know if Texas either knew it was a big game or would have treated it as a big They, they had a big game last week. Uh, you know, granted, that was at home. So, I don't know. They may have walked into a buzzsaw. I think Arkansas is, is making great strides under Sam Pittman. Last year, you saw their defense get better immediately. Now you see a lot of playmakers on offense, especially a couple of freshman running backs. I have no idea what this means for them in the SEC, whether this was a, a one-time thing or a sign of things to come, but a great win for him. And I'll take a little me, uh, take, uh, eat some crow. I thought that was a really unimpressive hire at the time. Uh, Sam Pittman, an offensive line coach, now having to face what was an absolutely steep rebuilding job. If you remember just how bad they got under Chad Morris when they were losing at home to San Jose State. I feel like every year they lost to a Mountain West team at home. Anyway, um, he made an impact last year almost immediately, and then they they petered down the stretch. But um, they're in a much better place now. Their fans have reason to be excited after about four years of misery. So uh, kudos to them. Uh, staying in that state, Stu, the Longhorns arch rival. I watched that game. My crew was doing, was doing, uh, was in Boulder. It was Texas A&M going to the buffs. I think a lot of people have talked about Texas A&M potentially being a playoff team. I don't think anybody thinks CU is all that talented or good. Um, Haynes King, their young quarterback, gets hurt, leaves the game. Zach Calzada steps in, and they really did nothing. You know, like they were – Zach Calzada made a couple of plays to get them out of there with a win. Um, 
you know, it's interesting in that I watched the first half, like I saw the score of week one of Kent State and Texas A&M and it was a blowout. And I just kind of assumed that it, that's what, all it was. And so on uh, Thursday, I rewatched the game and I'm watching the first half and I keep waiting for like a flurry of pick sixes or something of, and it was 10 to three at half. It didn't look like, like Haynes King threw a couple of bad picks. It didn't look like A&M did not look very impressive in the first half of that game. And obviously it turned out to be a blowout. A&M didn't look that good in this game either. I'm not saying I would sound the alarm that A&M is not a legit top six team, but I would. Okay. Sound the alarm, man. I mean, I'm pretty familiar with Colorado. Carl Durrell's team, they had a good, you know, a better than expected season last year, at least up until the bowl game. But they do not have the personnel to be taking a legit top five, top six team down to the wire. Colorado's, de- I mean, uh, A&M's defense obviously played well. They held down uh, Jarek Broussard, the really good running back for Colorado. But if that was really a comp, think about this. At least, at least as it was presented publicly, the quarterback competition between Haynes King and Zach Calzada went right down to the wire. If that's true, that uh, you know, I know this guy's making, you know, thrown into action and 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 wasn't necessarily ready to to be the starter, uh, but. If that's true, I, I don't know that that speaks well about their quarterback situation at all. And they've got great running backs, but they couldn't do much against Colorado, I think, because they, they Colorado knew they weren't going to be able to throw the ball very well. So, um, you know, you're going to take that team from – even if Haynes King comes back, you're going to take that team from yesterday, and they got to play Alabama in a few weeks. And this is supposed to be the year when they can finally knock them off. They'll have to make – night and day improvement from what we've seen the first two games. I would agree. I would agree. I just feel like there's a, there's, you know, we'll see how much better they get. I mean, to me, they, you know, we were just talking about like Iowa, what they look like. I don't think just based on what I saw the first couple of weeks, it doesn't, to me, they do not look like a top 10 team right now. They just, they just don't look that good, but again, they can get better. They, they have a bunch of good running backs, but I think if the quarterback play, you know, doesn't get get a lot better fast. Um, again, I mean, it's like Colorado. I would not. I would think is yes. They had a they had a nice season last year. You know, amid the pandemic, I don't think Colorado is is one of the five or six best teams in the Pac-12. You know, at, at, to be honest. And so, yeah, I get it. It was a road environment, but it was just like, I don't know. Uh, it was. It was a really, really shaky performance. But look, at least they got out of there with a win. If you lose that game, backup quarterback or not, because it's not like like CU's quarterback has hardly any experience either. Um, I think you're looking at it going, man, uh, the Pac-12 has a couple of like wins that we didn't see coming on Saturday. And that would have... In some ways, I was almost more surprised if if... A&M would have lost there than if if uh, Ohio State did. And again, I think this uh, it's a little bit of. I expected A&M to, to blow them out. Remember I did this too. Yeah, Colorado. You know, I know Texas and Texas A&M love to to. I'm sure yeah, I'm sure A&M fans had a lot of fun uh, at Texas's expense yesterday. But I'd remind them that Texas beat Colorado 55-23 in the bowl game, and Tom Herman still got fired. That's that's how. And they also, uh, by the way, and they also, by the way, did it in the second half with their backup quarterback. Yes. So, 
Uh, I know bowl games can be very deceiving. I believe Colorado was missing a lot of guys, but this is a team that if you are truly, a, Colorado is a team that if you're truly a top five team in A&M, you go and you take care of business. You don't need a last minute touchdown. Your only touchdown of the game to win the game. You know what, Stu? You know who looked really awful yesterday? Well, a lot of teams, <laughs> really. It was a very, there was a lot of, bad, I don't know, you'll have to narrow it down between Florida State's Notre Dame. We'll get to Florida State in a second. Um, okay. USC. Now, neither one of us oh, think, yes. think that much of USC, but Stanford got whipped by K-State in week one. Just absolutely embarrassed in week one. And then Stanford blows out USC at the Coliseum. Points. Just, you know, like, so let's let's talk about the elephant in the room here, Clay Helton's jobs job status i hope we don't have to talk about it much longer i hope they'll just like rip off the band-aid fourth year of this here's what i think it comes down to because i've had people i've had people ask this a bunch in the last 10 hours about what's going to happen to clay helton how soon before they fire him my gut is when the usc leadership realizes fans are going to just not come and and that could happen very soon after yesterday because they were flocking out of the stadium. They were disgusted by what they saw. And I think if it becomes that, because it's not like they're going to look, the USC leadership is going to say, yeah, let's make Graham Harrell or Todd Orlando the interim. And if it goes great, then ha, we got our guy. I think you look at their schedule, and their schedule is, you know, like you were staring at what should have been a relatively easy 5-0 and start. You got San Jose State. They beat them handily, although not impressively. Stanford, which looked awful in Week One. Washington State, which is which is just a mess. That's on the road, though. And then you have Oregon State and at Colorado. I mean, unless you had Arizona in there, it couldn't have gotten easier if you're a Pac-12 team, right? And so, but now I am interested to see, you know, what happens against Washington State. And then they have that game with, um, you know, Oregon State. If nobody shows up to see Oregon State, um, I don't know. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it, it would it would make them say, "All right, we can't do this any longer." Um, you know, it's it's rare to see somebody f- get fired two weeks into the season because you kind of knew what you have with Clay Helton. You know. Um, Randy Etzel got fired two games in the season. Randy Etzel had a spectacular <laughs> dumpster fire on his hands. Yes. Like, you can't, like, it would almost be like Clay Helton sending out eight guys on the field to play. I mean, it would be like, I don't want to, you know, USC is struggling. They're not what UConn football is right now. This tweet I got from Alt and Catch Fire last night, the game wasn't even over yet. Um, I've been a diehard USC fan for over 30 years. I'm actually enjoying this. There can be no more excuses, no more cover-ups, no more assistant shuffling. It's over. Finally, the administration has to make a move. And you and I, you know, especially you being in LA, we've heard that sentiment a lot. Um, I don't think they'll fire. I don't want to jinx or, or say this. And then by the time the podcast comes out, it's out. I don't think he's getting fired today, but we know how it's going to end. And I just got to say, so first of all, Stanford, David Shaw should have started Tanner McKee from, I don't know if they would have beaten Kansas State, but he should have been the starting quarterback. He's too loyal. This is a this is a pattern. He's too loyal to the upperclassmen, uh, and he went and gave Jack West that chance. But that doesn't that doesn't excuse. This was a typical Clay Helton game where they committed penalty after penalty. They had a punt blocked. Uh, uh, they they 
you know, just, just a lot of self-inflicted wounds. Um, heck the kicker got ejected on the first play of the game targeting. I'm not going to blame that on Clay Helton though. Uh, you just, you can't, this was supposed to be one of the more winnable games on their schedule. Stan- Stanford. I mean, I thought this was too pessimistic, but their over under win total coming the season was four. So it's a bad loss. There's no way around it. And any notion that, I mean, is it like that guy on Twitter said, like they've, they've spent the money, they brought in new assistants, they beefed up their staff, their personnel and nothing changes. And if anything, I feel bad for Keaton Slovis. I feel like he's regressing. Um, I know they don't have quite as many great receivers as they did before, but they've got one really good one. And, um, you know, he's now you're in a situation where like a lot of the USC fans are actually going to be rooting against them, which is not fair to the players, but you know, they want this to be over with. So, um, I joked last night, whether you can get tarmac like Lane Kiffin did after a home game, I don't actually think that's going to happen. Um, but I would say this, Bruce, you all, you're always the one when, when there's a coaching change, right? You do your candidate. Who are the top candidates? Uh, if I were rewriting your USC one now. Yeah. It's already written still. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, I will not tell you. And Chris Vanini probably hopefully has his coaching USC coaching profile story ready to go as well. I would think if you're a USC fan, you are looking up at the Pac-12 North and going, man, Mario Cristobal's recruiting better than we are. He's an O-line guy. He wants to be physical. He knows what it takes to win on the West Coast. That is very attractive to them. I think the other candidates that I think would, would – now, this one is not a great one coming off of what happened in Ames yesterday. I think Matt Campbell is somebody that USC folks definitely have gotten familiar with, at least you know, wrap their head around that one. And then there is Luke Fickle, who obviously has the connection of having worked and been hired by Mike Bone at Cincinnati, who's now the USC AD. I don't know if, honestly, I don't know if any of those guys would take the USC job. But I think if you're if you're Carol Folt, the president, I think you gotta you gotta think about okay, is that something we do? I mean, the guy I long thought made the most sense for USC was James Franklin at from Penn State. I don't know. If she would make that hire, I don't know if James Franklin would make that move. But to me, that's kind of where I think if you're them, that's how your search needs to look at. Can't be like, ooh, Jack Del Rio was like, you know, a former really good player here and has a lot of coaching experience, or Jeff Fisher, or you, you know, like USC has a way of USCing some of these things, whether it's the, you know, the Lynn Swan AD hire or whatnot. I think that they need to really start mentally wrapping their heads around. Who can we get to come here and what is it going to take for them to feel like they can win here? Um, let me get one other point on USC. Just from just from talking to people around the coaching world, uh, one of the the issues as well as people who've, who've been on uh, Clay Helton's staff, one of the issues that, and we've talked about this, and I've, I don't know, I've written a couple of columns about it for The Athletic about the USC problem is really a Monday through Friday problem as much as anything about how they practice. It is not with the same level of intensity and urgency that a lot of other places practice with. And I think you're going to hear some people who are going to, you know, that all comes back to Clay Helton also. And there's a lot of people who look at it and go, well, he went air raid. And if you go air raid, it's hard to go only air raid a little bit. Um, you know, obviously it works to a degree at Oklahoma in that 
you know, Lincoln Riley does that, but also, you know, so much of their program is really defined by the offensive line guy, Bill Biedenboe, and the run game that they have. And I think that, you know, kind of addresses the physicality and, and the way they practice. I'm not sure you have that from what I understand at, at USC. And it just keeps showing up um, as an issue. And again, it's it's about what they what they you hear about, what their practices are like. And the lack of physicality and the lack of, of urgency. And that's undermining it every step of the way. So that's probably going to be one Pac-12 coaching change. I didn't necessarily plan to bring this up, but on, well, we're, as long as we're on the subject, do you think Washington's going to have a coaching opening after this year? Because two games in, they are terrible, just terrible. And Jimmy Lake took over from Chris Peterson. He didn't exactly, this wasn't a, you know, Mike Norvell's getting a lot of heat today. They're 0-2. They just lost to Jacksonville State. But we knew he inherited a dumpster fire. Jimmy Lake took over for Chris Peterson, his handpicked successor. And they gave up. Michigan ran for three hundred, almost 350 yards on them. The same, they lost to Montana and scored one touchdown. They couldn't, you know, move the ball against Michigan either. A team can rebound. I'm not saying they can't rebound, but... It just looks like they're not remotely the same program they were under Pierce. Well, look, I mean, Mario Cristobal, go back to them for a second. His two coordinators, Tim Tim Deruder, proven, you know, terrific defensive coordinator, former head coach, and Joe Moorhead, terrific play caller, former head coach, right? And, you know, like, I think you, you and I both have talked a little bit and a lot, a little bit on the podcast, but a lot pro- offline about very we were very underwhelmed by the two coordinator hires that Jimmy Lake made John Donovan John Donovan who did not was very you know very underwhelming tenure at Penn State that was the guy to to run the offense and then Bob Gregory uh, I don't think Bob Gregory was the first choice uh, for Jimmy Lake to be the defensive coordinator you know that hire like I think is I think to me this is really comes back to the offense I think defensively they will get some of it sorted out. It wasn't like Michigan threw the ball all over the place. Michigan's really committed to the run. I think they have a good run game right now. I don't I don't think it's the defense that's the issue. I think it's like can they fix the offense? I mean, if you're Jen Cohen, the AD there, I, I she's not going to like do you know be very knee jerk and go, "Okay, Jimmy like can't get it done." They know I think they're you're talking about a guy who is still Still, really, kind of growing into the job as the head coach. Now, the, the issue is if you, if he may, and again, it's I, I don't think they're going to fire the offensive coordinator, whatever it is. It's five games in because they didn't have much of a season last year, games wise. But two weeks in, you lost to Montana, kind of unthinkable. I get it. You had all your receivers out or most of them, and then you get you get whipped by Michigan. You know. Um, We'll see. We'll see if, if at the very least, if they don't get a lot better on offense, Jimmy Lake's going to have to hire a new offensive coordinator um, this winter. College football, man, things change in a hurry. Uh, on Sunday night last week, Notre Dame, Florida State, epic game. Florida State looks like they're they've made massive improvements in Mike Norvell's second season. Uh, Tess, what have you done to us? You keep doing this with us. This is a Joe Test thing. Yeah. Do you remember the Texas Notre Dame game where it was like everybody was like, Texas is back. Yep. 
yeah, this, this, at least right now, appears like it was another deceiving one. So Florida's, well, I want to bring up the Florida State thing in a second, but I don't know what's going on with Notre Dame. That's two straight weeks. They had, you know, they're 2-0, and and congrats on that. But <laughs> thank you to Nicole Auerbach, our colleague. She was at the Ohio State game with me, who has a Peacock subscription. And I was able to see the end of that game that, w- that was only available on Peacock. Uh you know, Notre Dame had to go down the field at the end to beat Toledo. And we've, we're so used to Notre Dame having a, a, you know, under Brian Kelly, having a dominant offensive line. But even with Kyron Williams and Chris Tyree back there, they, they haven't been able to run the ball well. At all. Game. At all. At you all. Know, and also, um, look, uh, Marcus Freeman, who I think we both really think highly of as a defensive coordinator, hadn't, you know, they've struggled so far. Yeah. And yeah, um, it seems like there's an adjustment going on there that the, players aren't quite don't quite get his scheme yet um i'm not all that you know i'm not that worried about them although i will say that cincinnati game suddenly seems very interesting um but florida state lost last night if you if you didn't can i get into this one up because this is like so i want to set the scene of our little green room set up here at fox you have you know 12 big tvs and a couple of tvs that are broken into like four pictures so that so the game is much smaller and we're sitting there it's me um chris peterson emmanuel acho and two of the bosses and we're just kind of chatting and at one point i kind of glance over and i was like hey why is the sideline reporter interviewing a jacksonville state player after the game and then i'm looking i'm like he looks really happy what like did they win? And then all of a sudden, somebody scrambled and were like, looked at a box where I'm like, oh my God, they lost. And then then we saw the replay of the play. And it's mind-boggling that Florida State had so many defenders like near their own logo on the middle of the field. Or like, it was almost like they were really afraid to give up a play that was going to get them, with six seconds left, by the way, that was going to get them into field goal range. I mean, just... You know, like it, it just, I don't know. This was the kind of loss that felt like when Ubbin and I did that story about all the all the humiliating things that happened to Tennessee football in the last 10 years, this was something that seems like it would have happened to Tennessee. This was the rare play and a rare ending to a college football game where, okay, the, the FCS team just beat the Power 5 team. Like, this is a feel-good story, right? But... <laughs> When, you know, I happened to be watching, it was halftime of the BYU-Utah game, and they come on as Joey Galloway and Jesse Palmer. And I saw this also, well, first of all, I saw this in, in real time, if you if the ESPN call on it, but with Roddy Jones, I think was the analyst. Like, they were getting mad. Like, Joey Galloway was mad at Florida State. He was so disgusted. I, mad's not the right word. Disgusted that they would have let that, that they could let that happen. It was just like, if, if you played football, this was so inexcusable that you're, you're you're ticked off at them. My favorite call was the Florida State radio call. I don't know who their color analyst it's, is. Yeah, their play-by-play guy is Gene Deckeroff. Been there yeah, forever. So been there forever. Yeah. You know which player it is, the former player? I don't. I don't. Yeah. He <laughs> he was yelling at them. He was he was mad at them. Like, how could you let that happen? Um, I mean, it, to me, it was just, you know, rem- reminiscent of, of some of those Willie Taggart uh, debacles. But if I were a Florida State fan, I would try really hard not to throw in the towel on Mike Norvell. Uh, it you know, yes, the result of that game was inexcusable, but that Notre Dame game still happened. 
I do think they'll be better this year than last year. It's just a really, a really crappy way to lose. And also, I found it fitting that the quarterback who threw the pass, Eric Cooper, came from Clemson. The receiver who caught the touchdown was transferred from Duke and wasn't even really, a, a as far as I could tell, wasn't really even a main contributor for Duke. So here's an ACC team losing to ACC castoffs. Um, not, not great. Not great. But not a Clay Helton situation just yet. You know, I think he can... He can rebound from that. Um, I mentioned it just in passing just now, that BYU-Utah game, but, man, what, what must it be like to be a BYU fan right now? On Friday, you officially get that Big 12 membership that you've been hoping for for years. On Saturday, you end a nine-game losing streak to your rival. And I'll be honest, I thought BYU would take a step back this year because, A, Zach Olson was a really special quarterback, and, B, I believe they had the the you know, Bill Connolly's returning production chart, the least returning production of any team in the country, um, and they're facing a, a Utah team I picked to win the Pac-12 South, but I think would be pretty good. And in particular, because of Charlie Brewer, the Baylor transfer quarterback, he did nothing against that BYU defense. He did have a good game from uh, their freshman running back, but uh, no, I mean BYU dominated that game and and. Great scene afterward, the field storming. Uh, they didn't get to play Utah last year when they had their special season. So I don't know. I just can't imagine how gratifying that must be. Yes, great times to be to be a BYU fan right now. Uh, all right, Stu, we're going to do our next episode. In a few days, we'll get into the games of week three. But obviously, a, uh, a college football man, it never... I don't say it rarely disappoints you because like what happened yesterday in college football, like in the middle of the season or early in the season, the NFL can't do that. You no. know, like it's just, just, uh, just the, the, I mean, we just talked about a bunch, you know, just everything you think, you know, about the sport just goes up in smoke in the course of 14 hours. Um, and, and by the way, being on East coast time, a rare Saturday. Now that I'm on East coast time, I was, a. Uh, uh, that was that, was, and you had meaning. You know, the Pac-12 after dark games were, were really eventful. So you know, still super engaged in them at two thirty in the morning. But it was awesome. I, as I said at the beginning, awesome to be back at a big game. Uh, we'll come back later in the week and answer emails. Send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com, and we'll see you next time.